I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Flickr is the 33rd title in the Brave and Brilliant series published by University of Calgary Press. It's a novel by the award-winning author Laurie Hannell, whose central character, Cass, is endowed with psychic abilities. There's also an element of time travel, and I asked Ms. Hannell about the supernatural and why people believe in it and buy into it instead of science. New technologies or innovations also play a part, not to mention Calgary, where Lori lives and where she joined me from just over a month ago. The book depicts female characters in the present as well as in the past, and I'll ask Lori about the challenges women face then as now and what she can do uh, about that in fiction. Two of Lori Hannell's previous books include Love Minus Zero and Vermin. Visit lorihannell.ca for more. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Laurie Hannell. Ms. Hannell, good morning. Good morning. Nice to speak with you. Nice to talk to you as well. So this is, um, I was reading at the back of the book, this is the, the 33rd in the um, U of Calgary's uh, Brave and Brilliant, U of Calgary Press's Brave and Brilliant series. Um, what is it like to, to uh, say, fall into this this, this group of, because of, it's a, it's a, a diverse, and, and I've interviewed a, a, a couple of these authors. Um, they're just fascinating books that come out of uh, your part of the world, not just your part of the world, but, but um, from that press in particular. It's, it's, you know, it's a huge honor to be uh, included uh, in that list of authors who have been published by the Brave and Brilliant series. And like you say, um, you know, it's a massively diverse uh, type of um, there's poetry, there's drama, there's fiction, there's uh, creative nonfiction, there's all kinds of things there. And, you know, there are some really fine writers that I am super proud to be included with. So, uh, yeah, it, I mean, the whole experience has just been great, working with UFC Press and working particularly with the Brave and Brilliant series. Yeah, the, 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 the tagline, or the, the, these are brilliant books that entertain and engage readers with fresh, energetic approaches. The storytelling inverse, and that's what I found as I was telling you. Just as I'm starting the book now, that first chapter um, where uh, Cassie—that's uh, what she's called when we first meet her. I guess right. later in the book she's called Cass. Um, she she has to go to the hospital. Her parents take her there. Um, it's brilliantly plotted, and um, it ends on a note that um, I don't know. Does that set the tone, say for the, for the book? I think it's fair to say so. I think that that gives us a little bit of insight into what what this character is facing and and where the story is going so yes it's it takes place in 1971 um, how old is she she's eight years old at that point and then as I, I understand later in the book we, we follow her as she she gets older is that right that's right so um, the sort of the main part of the story happens when she's in her early 20s and then towards the end of the book she's um, let's say middle-aged yeah. uh, toward the end, yeah. What kind of upbringing was it for her in, the, in these years with her parents, say? Well, um, you know, her parents weren't on the scene uh, after after the opening chapter. Mm-hmm. So she was uh, raised by an aunt. Uh, her She and her brother were raised by an aunt, and uh, I think they, they felt the loss of their parents uh, very keenly. And uh, I think also, in a way, the the aunt and uncle sort of made them feel like, you know, they weren't really, um, not exactly wanted, but uh, they were unexpected, let's put it that way. So, yeah, the the whole family scene was a little bit uncomfortable for all of them, I think. Yeah, and, and where does the book take place? 
Uh, well, uh, it mostly takes place in Calgary, but then uh, the time travel sections uh, take place in um, uh, West Orange, New Jersey, uh, mm-hmm. where the Thomas Edison Laboratory was located. And then towards the end, there's a section that takes place in uh, modern-day Newfoundland. That's that's just part of the book where they, they go to Menlo Park, I guess, where, where um, um, Edison worked and lived. Is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, what's fascinating is this time travel element, and I haven't gotten quite there yet, and, and I'm fascinated by uh, you as an author um, utilizing that in terms of, of a story, uh, in the story. Um, it must be fun to, to, to take, uh, say, characters or a situation and, and, and connect them to the past. Very much so. Um, this particular story um, kind of had its genesis uh, in a couple of things. Um, first, when I was a teenager, I did read a little bit of time travel that got me thinking that at some point I would like to write a time travel novel. So I read... Um, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court mm-hmm. by Mark Twain, uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and uh, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And all of those are very different novels, but they're all time travel, and they all made me think about, you know, when I got older, I would like to try uh, to write a time travel novel. And then uh, later on in the late 80s, um, like my character Cass, I worked part-time while I was going to U of C, at um, a thrift store, and, uh, you know, I handled a lot of antique objects in that job. And uh, I wondered, uh, you know, at one point whether it would be possible, just thinking about a story, if a character was handling one of these antique objects and it suddenly was able to transport her to the time that it came from. Mm. So that was an element. And then later on, um, in the mid-2000s, I read... The Time Traveler's Wife, which is a time travel novel by Audrey Niffenegger. Um, and it really re- reawakened my early interest in writing time travel. But it wasn't until about 10 years ago, though, that my interest in writing time travel novels and the idea that came to me at the store finally compelled me to start writing this novel. It's a very, <laughs> very long, long process uh, that led to the publication of this book. Yeah, the, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, handling an object in a thrift store, and um, mm-hmm. my my parents are Filipino. I grew up in, I was born and grew up in Vancouver. Right. And um, my friends who are Asian, say, the Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Filipino as well, or any other kind of Asian that I've, I've encountered over the years, they, they tend to be superstitious and not like antiques. For example, if you would go into a, in their homes, it would be new furniture. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, uh, maybe it's just these people, not um, people of that, say, cultural extraction altogether. Okay. But, uh, but the people that I've encountered over the years, and I like going to thrift stores. I buy old books and DVDs. And um, I guess I'm agnostic in the sense that uh, whether it's ghosts or, or time travel, because it's never happened to me. <laughs> but but for, for, for a lot of people I know, um, they're hesitant about that, especially, you know, um, if it, if it came from someone who died, as most of these things that one finds in a thrift store uh, are derived from, right? You know, an estate sale or something like that. I think quite often, yeah. And, you know, I think that people do have kind of a... I think this is less so now, but certainly years ago, I think there was a taboo um, about buying secondhand items. I don't know if it was more of a, 
you know, hygiene concern or something. Sure. But, you know, some people, my mother included, would not set foot in a thrift store, right? Um, but, you know, perhaps that's part of it. Perhaps there is a, you know, a superstition about what energy these objects hold. Like you, I'm also actually quite agnostic about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't really think this could happen, but... I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about, right? Yeah, and you do wonder, you know, I, I sit in my office here in the middle of the night, I've got things that belong that have be- belonged to dead people, famous people, and not so famous people as well. And I do wonder um, if one day in the middle of the night when I'm working late here at my desk, if, if any of these things will come to life <laughs> or anything like that or affect me. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm... I'm uh... Cross your fingers, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. So, so for, for Cass, um, is an object, I guess, takes her to the past. Is that right? That's right. And so, um, the other thing that I was reading that, about the book that I found fascinating is that, um, it, because the book is set in Calgary, um, I, I didn't know this. That it does not have a reputation for anything supernatural about it. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if that's strictly true. I mean, we do have a couple of old buildings in town that are uh, reputedly haunted. Um, one of them is the, the Dean House uh, on 9th Avenue in the Inglewood District. It's now a fancy restaurant, but um, it, uh, it supposedly is a haunted house. But, you know, beyond that, really, I think um, our reputation in the country is of a, you know, kind of a hardworking oil and gas, very conservative town. There's nothing really, you know woo-woo about Calgary in most people's opinion. So, yeah, it, it was a little bit of a stretch, I guess, to to set a time travel novel in Calgary, but on the other hand, I think it worked, you know. It's not an old city, I guess, is that I mean, Vancouver's not an old city as well. Well, it, Calgary's not, it, it's less old than Vancouver, yeah. so I think we were incorporated as a city in, oh boy, the late... 1890s, so yeah. it's a fairly young city. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, you, Alberta did enter Confederation until 1905. Is that right? 1905. That's yeah. right. Oh, I guess that doesn't leave room for old buildings. Well, I mean, I guess it's a relative thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, even even at that, we do tend to uh, knock things down, like the Saddle Dome, for instance. Right. Um, yep. <laughs> once they outlive their usefulness, and re- in some people's opinion, and uh, replace them with the new things. So we really have a a reputation about being all about the new, right? All yeah. about the present. So again, um, having a time travel novel set in Calgary, a little bit of a, I don't know, an oddity perhaps. But uh, it, it, it's a great place because it's um, the uh, the possibility is there, right. where it may not have been with, with say other books, other authors say. That's uh, right. You've got a great canvas to work on. Exactly. I think this is. Um, uncharted territory for Calgary authors, for sure. Well, why do you think people, uh, Laurie, uh, turn to the supernatural? And, and, you know, we've seen this in recent years, um, you know, in, in times of uncertainty, say. Um, people do tur- turn away from, say, science and, and start believing something else. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think you're right that we, we have seen this and are continuing to see it um, in recent times. Um we're living in a time when a lot of religious traditions are being looked at under a new light. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, Catholicism, uh, the faith that I was brought up in, has seen many of its followers turn away in the light of sexual abuse scandals. 
Um, people were also coming to see religion in a different light at the turn of the 20th century, which yeah. is the era that my character Cass travels back to. Um, you know, Darwin's theories and other uh, advances in science caused people to question their religious beliefs. Um, and then there were all the advances in science at the end of the 19th century was so rapid. Um, you know, this was an era that gave us electric light, sound recording, uh, the beginnings of motion pictures and broadcasting, and not to mention all the advances in medicine and physics. And just as we have seen in recent years, uh, scientific and technological advances encouraged almost a backlash of magical thinking and fascination with the occult. Um, I think that humans do have a drive to believe in a supernatural world, and the more those beliefs are questioned, I think that the more of a backlash there is. I think we're really seeing this happen now uh, with New Age thinking that has kind of morphed into alternative medicine that has to some extent become an anti-science movement. Um, it's, it's an interesting time we're living in, let's just put it that way. It's also a troubling time, and so, so do, do you find... Uh, pondering these things in fiction, uh, particularly, do you find it particularly use useful? Say, um, I'm not so sure if I find it useful. Of more, you know, it may more just be an outgrowth of my concern mm -hmm. uh, with the direction we're going in. Yeah, I kept thinking about um, because Cass does suffer loss at the beginning of the book. Um, it made me think about. Um, because you like to relive, you know, certain moments in one's mind, you know, yeah. from one's life, and and you know, does one moment change, or or say inspire or, or affect a great, uh, you know, change in in one's life, and what you could have done, say, to, to to mitigate that or avoid that altogether. Right. There are always um, pivotal moments yeah. in in your life that you tend to look back on for sure. Yeah, and then so your mind wanders into these places, and I can see how it, it, it could wander into, say, the supernatural, because you'd want to, if it's unfinished business, in particular with, you know, uh, the loss of two, two particular people in your life, you'd like to figure that out, maybe, or contend with that. For sure, and I think when you're when you're not finding answers with, um, you know, traditional faiths and all that kind of thing, um, you know, the supernatural is a very um, natural place to, to look for answers, yeah. We were talking just before, because I'm, I'm dealing with a, um, uh, with a, uh, th a throat problem this morning. Um, I was telling you about my uh, pineapple juice remedy, and I could see how some people might think that that's bunk. Um, at the moment, it's working, because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, rather <laughs> well. Um, uh, but, no, I could see that it probably has no scientific basis whatsoever. Well, maybe if they did a clinical <laughs> trial, you know, and they found out what exactly in the pineapple juice was doing it, yeah. you know, they would prove it. What I'm finding fascinating, and I'm looking forward to, to, to continuing reading Flickr, is um, how you depict female characters, and you depict them sort of in the present, if you will, and then you take them to the past over 100 years ago. Um, examining the, the, the role that women play in society or, or the role that they take up in society, was that interesting to you? It was very interesting, and I, you know, I have to say it's probably the main reason that I wanted to write this novel. Um, so my character Cass is torn in the early part of the novel between the expectations her family has for her and the path that her psychic abilities seem to have faded for her. And then later on, she's torn between love in the world she travels back to and her responsibilities in the 1980s and beyond. 
um, her quest for agency, so her, her quest to exercise free will over the way she lives her own life, I think is at the root of the story. And I think that the quest for agency is an, an issue for so many women and is something that lies behind the massive popularity of the Barbie movie, for instance, mm. which is clearly speaking to women in the language we need to hear right now. You know, that we, we do have power over our own decisions, our own lives, and all of that. So, yeah, that was uh, definitely one of the things that got me going on this novel. And, and the contrast to, to say, I mean, the, the, these are struggles that, that happened, say, in the early part of the 20th century as they did in the, in, the, in the later part of the 20th century and now in 2023. Yep. That we as a society are still contending with. And it, it, things change a little bit, but not really, do they? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're looking at a shift as large as, you know, um, um, female um, agency, uh, you know, that happened, say, from 1900 until now, it's a massive, massive shift in in uh, the power that we have in our own lives. And so that's not going to happen all at once. It has to happen in waves, I think. And, you know, we're still not there yet, yeah. but I hope the next wave is even more powerful for us. You you are a writer of Canadian fiction. Um, I, I was just thinking about this as, as I was preparing for our chat. It, it's it's probably easier to be read outside of the country, say, than than your your colleagues who write nonfiction. I mean, yeah. uh, some of our nonfiction may not be interesting to an American reader, but I, I certainly think a, a novel by a Canadian um, would be easier for them to pick up. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, it's I think a sad fact that um, our history and maybe even our current events aren't mm. that well known outside of our borders. But I mean, you can tell a story that's set in Canada that will have appeal to all kinds of people because, you know, stories, good stories can be universal. Uh, people can identify with them no matter where they're from, right? So I think you're right. I noticed that, that um, uh, parts of the book are told in, in uh, different, uh, I guess, uh, Different forms of narration. You have uh, um, are these journals, say, that we read in the book. Okay. Uh, as opposed to say a, a third person narrating. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm using the first person narration, mm -hmm. uh, and that is something that I just tend to use as a matter of course. I guess um, it feels the most um, authentic to me. Uh, the most the most natural way to tell a story um, to me is the first person narration. Yeah. Yeah, and you really get you get to know your characters a lot more, don't you? I think so because you really have to stand in their shoes. Mm. Uh, you you have to be them, and so when you have to be a character, you need to know them pretty intimately and able to uh, you know in order to be able to tell their story. I'm assuming, Laurie, that there, there was a, um, I don't know if a lot is the right word, but there was some research involved in writing this book. Is that right? There was definitely some research involved in writing it. Um, I had to find out a lot of things about uh, Thomas Edison and his inventions, mm -hmm. um, about West Orange, New Jersey, uh, where his laboratory was located and where Cast travels in time to. Um, I also did a lot of reading about uh, carnival psychics and palm readers and mm. the way they work, the way they uh, sort of, you know, do their acts, and I found that really fascinating. 
And, of course, there was a lot of information that I had to find out about Flickers, which is another name for silent films. Although, to be honest, I've been very interested in silent films since childhood. So, you know, I think um, the direction the story goes in is often kind of uh, predicated by your own interest, too. So you might go down a research alley that you're particularly interested <laughs> in, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, I was flipping around earlier, and um, you, were, you were talking about... Um, Get the term Van Dykes, and and uh, I guess the, the sort of uh, facial hair and, and haircuts that people had of the era. Right, a Van Dyke yeah. uh, beard and mustache. Right? Yeah, and so so you I mean that, that must have been fun to look at. I'm I'm a, a fan of film. I'm not an expert at film by any stretch, but I, I, I like watching old movies. I have if, if I had to pick one channel that, to have in my house to, that I had to buy from the cable company, it'd be TCM. I'm with you. I, yeah. In fact, I wish we could do that. But I guess in the U.S. they have a, a, a streaming service, but we yeah. don't have it here yet. Yeah, and um, uh, when it comes to silent movies, I, I, I'm not quite there yet. I'm, I'm e- Even films of the 30s, I'm not there yet. Um, what is it about silent films that, that draws you? I mean, it, it's a very different kind of filmmaking than, than, than we're accustomed to, I guess, right? It is, and I mean, I think uh, I think it's difficult um, for a lot of people to get into it, partly because of the um, silence, obviously, mm-hmm. but also uh, because of the fact that um, the projection speed is often not corrected to the way it would have been shown in the olden days. Uh-huh. Um, my grandfather was a projectionist in Regina. Um, he did that for many, many years. Uh, in fact, he had a, uh, a little business where he drove around to small towns in Saskatchewan with a collection of films, and he would, you know, he would show movies in the local community hall or church or wherever in places where they didn't have a theater. So he had this little uh, stock of films, and a lot of them were silent. So, you know, from you know babyhood, I had been watching silent films: Charlie Chaplin, uh-huh. Keystone Cops comedies, that kind of thing, and so. I guess, you know, am I just used to it more than some people are? But I, I've always been fascinated with them, and uh, I, was, I was thrilled to be able to have a chance to write about it a little bit in this novel. Yeah, that's a, the, um, I guess people like Chaplin or Buster Keaton or even Lillian Gish. Yeah. Um, these would be a great way to, say, introduce myself to, to, to their silent work, because I'm familiar with some of their, their sound work, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I would start with the comedies and... Uh, yeah. Look into Mary Pickford too. Um, a Canadian, no doubt. No, no Canadian, absolutely. Even though she was known as America's <laughs> sweetheart, but yeah. Uh, yeah, she was one of the most powerful figures in early Hollywood, and she did some. Uh, she, I think, she was known as one of the most naturalistic of the uh-huh. very early screen actors. So check her out. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's fascinating. You mentioned your grandfather, and then, of course, you, you write about this in the book. Just how film captivated a society then. I mean, this was something new, wasn't it? The, the, I mean, we take for granted today, Friday night, we're going to go see Barbie or Oppenheimer, right. um, or right. rent it, or rent a movie, say, on our television or computer. Um, Absolutely. This is something that people had to dress up to go to, right? Yeah. In fact, I think at the time that um, this story is set, so 1900. It was so new that people didn't even really know quite what to think of it. Yeah. And these uh, early motion picture, well, they didn't even call them motion pictures, these early flicker um, yeah. auditoriums were basically just 
kind of like when my grandfather was traveling around, they were just set up wherever there was a space. They'd put up a big sheet or a tarp and, and show these films. And the films themselves at that time didn't even really have um, a plot. It was just a couple of minutes of something happening. It might be a, you know, a building on fire or a train going by or people you know, coming out of a, a church or something like that. And just the fact that these pictures were moving yeah. was enough to fascinate people and, and uh, you know, cause them to part with their money so that they could watch <laughs> this. And uh, from there, uh, you know, uh, filmmakers realized that, hey, we can tell stories and, and make this even more interesting for people. And there you go. I, I really find that uh, period of film history so interesting, how it, how it moved from just being a phenomenon of moving pictures to being um, an art form where we tell stories. And a business as well. I guess that's why they call it show business because it is a right. spectacle and a show. But there is that business part of it, right? Oh, well, for sure, yeah. I mean, it's isn't it one of the top ten industries in the United States? I yeah. think it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, so we talked about the research and, and um, on the writing. Um, I would assume that um, because it is it is work, there are parts of writing that you don't enjoy. Are there are there things that come to mind? Say that when you, when you're in the process of writing, cause, you know, I talk to people all the time, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, they like the research part. They find that you know going down the rabbit hole, as you, you alluded to a moment ago, fun. Um, are there parts of writing that you don't enjoy? Um, I would say that there are parts of it that I enjoy less than other parts. <laughs> but if I didn't really for the most part, enjoy it, I don't think I would be doing it, because like you say, it is such a lot of work. Now, going down the rabbit hole with research is great. I mean, that's, it's a lot of fun, but you can get lost down that rabbit hole. So sometimes, yeah, it can be a little hard to pull, uh, pull back and get out there and get that story down. I guess, you know, maybe the, the hardest part for me is getting a first draft complete. You know, you can have an idea and you can do some research, but then, um, and and crafting sort of a decent narrative out of that is challenging. I, I always find the parts where I'm going back and rewriting, that's a little more fun because you kind of know what you need to do to fix it. Or if you don't know, you can, you know, ask someone, you can find out. But, uh, yeah, being the being at the stage where you're having to think of what happens now, that is, it's tricky, I would say. It's, it's not as much fun as research, but... All in all, really, I like most of it. Are you writing all the time? Um, no, I'm not. I I kind of look at this as a as a job. So I, you know, I write five days a week, and it, when I'm in you know composition mode, I will write for two or three hours a day. Uh-huh. And there are sometimes, like right now, I'm doing some book promo, so I'm not writing right now. Um, I'm going to be doing a little traveling in the next few weeks to, you know, promote the book, and that's fine. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I I tend to write quite a bit. So, what's next? Are you working on another novel now? Um, I have a novel that is being considered right now. It's being read, um, and it's about the life of Clara Schumann. She was a uh, 19th century uh, German pianist and composer, and she led a very interesting life. Well, we'll look forward to that. I, I can't wait to, to uh, get off the phone with you and, and, and finish Flickr because um, there are a number of things in here that I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out about Cass and 
about this era that you take us in. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Lori. Uh, all, all the best and continued good luck with the book. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been great talking to you. The website for more is at lauriehannell.ca. The book is called Flickr. It's uh, published by the University of Calgary Press, part of their Brave and Brilliant series. It's uh, author Lori Hannell. Join me on the line from Calgary in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.